Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Muni Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter, and we're navigating the high seas of global politics as we do twice a month, every month. And today the topic is Serbia, more specifically the Serbian elections in which the results were not exactly surprising with President Aleksandar Vucic taking nearly 60% of the presidential vote in his party. The Serbian Progressive Party won 43% of the vote with its coalition partner, the Socialist Party, with another 11.6% of the vote. So as you can see, they pretty much control the country. But the challenges facing President Vujic are very different from the challenges that he had before because they go far beyond the borders of this Balkan country of 7 million people. The war in Ukraine is exposing Serbia's alliances. Are they with the EU? Are they with Russia? Where are they? We'll be joined by Maida Ruge, an expert in the Balkans, very shortly. So before we do that, Peter, you've noted that the conservative Serbian Progressive Party won the elections easily at the parliamentary, presidential, municipal level, deepening the hold by Vucic and his party on the country he's ruled with an increasingly totalitarian feel for over 10 years. He stays in power comfortable mandate with a very difficult geopolitical agenda. Yeah, Mooney, the difficult geopolitical agenda is exactly right. He's backed into a corner. His position on the Russia-Ukraine crisis has him between a rock and a hard place. Or he's trying to be in every place. After keeping silent on the invasion, he voted in favor of a UN resolution condemning it, but has declined to impose sanctions. In line as an EU candidate, where Serbia has been waiting since 2009, Vucic could be compelled to keep the European line, but his alliances naturally lean towards the Kremlin. And the deep, deep ties, they're both economic, they're political, they're historical, and as many pro-Russian Serbs would like to say, surprise, 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 those ties are centered on the dependence of Russian gas and also military support and private sector relations. The EU has its own, albeit weaker, leverage on the other side, basically in helping Serbia gain energy independence and giving the country and and all the Balkans incentives and prerogatives to join the EU. Yeah, Peter, but this is also a complication. Serbia's proximity to Russia make it an increasingly more interesting actor to join the EU. They've been slowballed there, given that it's highly unlikely, if at all possible, that Belgrade would ever join NATO. And a reminder, NATO bombed Serbia in 1999, and since then, the military alliance has become a bad word in Serbia. That's why having a close ally in Putin's backyard would be an enticing possibility. It's difficult to predict where these alliances are going to land, Mooney. And so the reality is that the first impact will fall on Serbian citizens, most of which have been notoriously neutral. So let's hear from Thea, who has a thing or two to add to this conversation as a Serbian as well. Hi, I'm Taya Ivanovic, and this is Taya's Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. And today we're tackling a topic that is especially close to my heart, as my parents are Serbian and I've spent a lot of time in the Western Balkans growing up. And it was really hard for me to prepare for this episode because there is so much to talk about. And the Serbian election was unsurprising to anyone even remotely following Balkan politics. But what I've been seeing in the news a lot is that this, quote, Serbia is moving to the right conversation. 
And I think it's important to take a look at that because once you look at the nuances, you'll quickly realize that's not really the case. Sure, the country in general leans more right, given its combination of elders having lived under a one-party regime under Tito and the youth growing up in the ultra-nationalist 1990s and early 2000s, but Talks about an extreme right-wing parties now suddenly popping up and growing in popularity are really bogus claims. The right-wing parties were heavily promoted in pro-government media during this election, unlike more centrist opposition parties, collectively known in Serbia as, quote, the liberal opposition. And, you know, this is a country where Russian propaganda, frustration over COVID-19 restrictions, and the spread of right-wing conspiracy theories are very commonplace. And which its progressives have managed to pacify the far right, bringing many followers of the far right, including these violent football supporters, into its ranks, officially as well as unofficially, very often. And he will gladly use those parties to present himself as the sort of voice of reason or the guarantor of peace and stability, which was his campaign slogan. He decided to strengthen these parties because he needs a boogeyman from which his party will defend Serbia and Europe. So a little more nuanced than what is often portrayed in the media. Do you have any thoughts on Serbia's elections and where the Balkans are going from here? What role will they play as the Ukraine war rages on? Tweet at Altamar Podcast and let me know. That's right, Thea. It looks like Vucic's stronghold is here to stay. So let's ask our guest whether Serbia doubles down on a pro-Russia policy or opens the door to a more Eurocentric view. Indeed, our guest is Maida Ruge, a senior policy fellow with the Wider Europe Program at the European Council on Foreign Relations based in Berlin. Before joining ECFR, she spent three years as a fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute at SAIS at Johns Hopkins University and has worked with the delegation of the European Commission and spent time at prominent universities such as the Free University in Berlin and the Gulf Research Center. Welcome, Magda. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you, and thank you very much for having me. Let's start with your thoughts on the recent Serbian election. Obviously unsurprising, but are Vucic and his party as comfortably in power as they seem? Well, it really depends at which level and at which office. At the local level, they did not did that rate in major cities. In Belgrade, it's unclear whether the elections will be repeated. In the presidential elections, yes, definitely. Vucic, as a candidate, got about 59%. So, you know, according to some news outlets, almost 800,000 more than all the other candidates combined. And as far as the parliamentary elections, SNS, his party, did not perform that well as he did as a kind of presidential candidate. They do not have the majority needed to form the government alone. They got about 42% of the vote, which gives them 120 seats. They will need 126 in the parliament to form a government. So, you know, in kind of as far as his party goes, they performed really worse than he did as a single candidate. So, you know, they will definitely need a coalition partner and the choice of that coalition partner will, I think, determine the kind of direction of the foreign policy that your podcast wants to talk about. 
Give us a little bit of color about Vucic. We read Western media where he's often painted in the same light as Viktor Orban and, and both of them democratically elected and, and quite you know radical in the way they govern, increasingly authoritarian, both of them fostering deep relations with Russia and with Putin. But is this a very simplistic view? I think, you know, not really. I think there are many similarities between the two. They both fit into this autocrat slash nationalist image, and they follow a very similar script for consolidation of power. First of all, you know, what you observed with Orban as well as with Vucic is the securitization of public narrative. So they're both using this tactics where they create, you know, enemies uh, of Hungarian or Serbian people in order to distract from or to legitimize consolidation of unchecked political power to legitimize repression of freedom of media, legitimize capture of the judiciary and under institutions of checks and balances, right? So they've done this following a very similar script. The difference between them, I think, is very interesting, and that is that the enemies are different, who they choose to portray as being after Hungarian or, you know, the enemy of the Hungarian or Serbian people. And in Orban's case, it's you know, the Muslim immigrants, it's George Soros and his network of so-called co-conspirators, and it's even the EU directly. Alexander Vucic is more careful about directly offending the West when compared to Orban. So he will not go after specific Western figures. So he won't go after Soros. In fact, he has a very good cooperation with the Open Society Foundation he doesn't even go that much after Muslim immigrants. Rather, what he does is he uses this kind of typical regional enemy image. You know, the Bosniaks and Bakits and Begovic, the Kosovars and Alban Kurti, NATO, et cetera, et cetera. And so, it, you know, it's, it's kind of, in, in many ways, they are very, very similar. They cooperate really well. And then in others, they choose different tactics um, as to how to pursue the strategy of consolidating power. That's interesting because in this context right now with Ukraine, we've been debating earlier Serbia's interesting geopolitical quandary, where on the one hand, there's the longstanding ties to Russia. On the other hand, there has been some outreach to join the EU. And for a long time, these were compatible agendas and not anymore. So what is your take on this kind of dichotomy? Well, my take is that they were never really compatible. You know, it's not just Serbia's failure to comply with the kind of EU foreign policy directives and EU sanctions on, you know, on Russia because of Ukraine or Crim before. If you take a look at kind of the, you know, the question of compatibility of Chinese investments with Serbia's EU path, you know, the Chinese infrastructure projects have in the past largely failed to adhere to European procurement standards. Their investments, you know, produced pollution that has completely kind of taken Serbia away from EU environmental standards. Huawei's contract for the rollout of 5G network, the installation of facial recognition cameras was always problematic in relation to EU privacy laws, data protection, national security perspective. So Serbia was doing a lot, not just on Russia, but also on China, that was absolutely incompatible with EU standards, whether, you know, various normal standards or foreign policy. You know, the only difference right now is not what Serbia is doing, but what the EU is doing. And that is that the EU is no longer willing to tolerate 
<laughs> to the same extent, we'll see, you know, how much Serbia's non-compliance. Previously, you know, prior to Russia's aggression of Ukraine, the EU was aware of Serbia's non-compliance, but it has not held Serbia to account. And I think what happens with Russia's aggression of Ukraine, it has created such outrage in European capitals that the pressure on Serbia is much more significant than it was before. Maida, that's so interesting. And before I ask the question I wanted to ask, I'm going to push you a little more. Because mm -hmm. if the Europeans push Vucic further or more, where, where, does, where does he go? I mean... Mm -hmm. You know, given given dependency on natural gas, given mm -hmm. historical ties, to talk to us a little bit about where you think increased pressure will lead. You know, I'd love to be a fly on the wall in these conversations that take place behind the closed doors, right? Because the sort of pressure that we're hearing is happening is clearly not visible in kind of public statements. You know, it's it's still kind of all of these public statements are quite qualified. Um, and so it really depends on what is being said and what Serbia is being threatened with. And clearly I don't have access to that information. But, you know, what I'm assuming is that Serbia, and I think this is very much the case with the new German foreign minister, um, led, you know, the, the kind of the foreign ministry led by the Greens, that the pressure specifically on President Vucic is that once he forms the new government coalition, you know, which could happen any time between now, but I presume he will take all the time he has constitutionally uh, until sometime in summer, is that he aligns Serbia with EU sanctions um, on Russia. And some of that pressure, you know, some of the pressure you see is yielding small results. Serbia has aligned itself with a, you know, 2014 sanctions on Yanukovych that it had failed kind of to replicate for a very long time. Now they're doing that. It has sided with the EU on the UN General Assembly resolutions condemning uh, Russia, but it has not gone any further. And that is precisely because you know, long-standing ties, also energy dependence. Serbia import 81% of its annual gas consumption from Russia and only 14% from the EU. And also it enjoys the kind of, if you want, most, most favored nation status with the price of $270 per, you know, 1,000 cubic meters compared to, you know, the market price of gas, which is four times higher. And so there's a lot of reasons why Vucic wouldn't be very keen to infuriate uh, Putin and the Russians. Serbia's gas contract expires uh, at the end of next month, I think. And so, you know, he is on one hand under a lot of pressure from the EU to align Serbia with EU sanctions. On the other hand, he clearly has, you know, other calculations, political energy, etc. And so I think which way he will go will really depend on how persistent the EU is and what are the sort of threats that are being communicated behind closed doors. And I imagine that in addition to worrying about the gas contract, he has to worry about his base. I mean, his base is certainly given the nationalists uh, as you descri well described them as a as a nationalist i presume his base is quite anti nato pro russia i mean how much does he have to worry about alienating his base very good question i think he does and he you know it, it's it's this typical kind of dilemma that one thinks about when observing 
you know, I won't call him an autocrat of a sort that you have with, you know, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia. Right. Uh, he's not, you know, a crown prince, but he still enjoys a, you know, large amount of power and control over the public narrative. He shapes the public opinion through the con kind of government control of media, and he has pushed public opinion in such a direction that it's going to be very difficult to get himself out. I mean, 61% of, you know, Serbia's citizens, when asked in the polls, believe that Russia's aggression of Ukraine is not an aggression, that it is a war that was brought about by West and NATO. You have, you know, the question of affiliation, kind of historical ties, the orthodox ties. 78% of Serbian population think that being orthodox Christian is kind of very important to their national identity. And there's a lot of promotion of kind of this Russian Serbian orthodox brotherly ties. So yes, he, you know, there is a worry about public opinion, which is in, its, in, in a way, you know, partly his own creation through the, the government control of media. But then again, as much as he has managed to kind of push public opinion in one direction, if he's pushed against the wall, I think he could skillfully turn the narrative and kind of start driving it in the other direction. And when you say the other direction, you mean a more pro-European direction or? Precisely. I mean, I think we will see that as we start following, you know, the way the war is reported on, the way Russia is reported on. He has already kind of not really loudly, but very subtly distanced himself from Ivica Dacic, who is one of the main Russian uh, kind of partners and his uh, former coalition and, and current still uh, coalition partner. So I think, you know, many of the these politician slash nationalist slash autocrats are quite skillful in changing and shaping the narrative when they're pushed against the wall. And if they have to, if they feel that, you know, the stakes are so high and if their cost benefit calculation tell them, you know, we need to take a step A, but for that, I, you know, I need to do something about public opinion. Right. And is there something that, I mean, I know that you, you've said, and I totally agree with you, that Europe is in no mood to make concessions now, but is there a carrot that the Europeans can bring to try to lure Serbia and Vucic closer to Europe and further away from, further away from Russia? I think they've been giving them too many carrots, to be quite honest. Um, the problem with the EU is that up until this point, and, you know, we're talking about decades, the EU has failed to insist on implementation of its membership conditionality. And it has purposefully, you know, closed one eye and ignored huge violations of, you know, rule of law and democratic norms, not just by Serbia, by the way, but since we're now talking about Serbia. And, you know, there have been reports about Hungary playing, you know, a major role in the EU in kind of watering down EU's conditions and especially monitoring of these conditions when it comes to Serbia and its accession path. So 
you know, I, I've been hearing this question, oh, we need to give them something, not just now to take them away from Russia and align Serbia with the EU, but previously it was the same sort of narrative. We need to give Serbia something in order to get them to recognize Kosovo. And what that produces is it produces a situation in which Vucic kind of is, you know, puts himself in this position where he talks to the EU and he, you know, presents himself as a, you know, a, a partner of the EU, but he's somehow held, you know, either by the Russians or by the extreme right. He is not able to take that step of either recognizing Kosovo or detaching from Russia. So, you know, he gets the EU to, on one hand, ignore his really autocratic behavior and, you know, and, and, infringing on the rule of law. And then on the other, what he does is he convinces the EU that they somehow need to give him the fast track to membership, despite the fact that, you know, most of the norms and standards that the EU should really insist on have been violated. So I think, you know, if we want to see the change, yes, sure, the kind of Perhaps, you know, the, the inevitable carrot that the EU will have to give is a, a more credible perspective and B, including Serbia in whatever the future energy arrangements they will set up for themselves because, you know, Germany is facing exactly the same problem on, you know, dependency on, on Russia's gas. And so diversifying away from Russia's gas for Serbia will definitely require help from the EU and kind of being part of the same package. But on the other hand, I think what the EU really needs to do is focus on more stricter implementation of conditionality. And that means not just kind of carrots, but also sticks. And Maida, let's go back to the domestic political environment. So my my section, my segment today is all about Serbia's quote-unquote move to the right. And there's been a lot of sort of talk about this. But for those that follow the region and, and follow Serbia, you can really see that Vucic, uh, you know, SNS, the progressives, very gladly use the far right for their own benefits, right? They, um, they use them as sort of scapegoats in which Vucic ends up being sort of the, the moderate candidate. And how do you see, how do you see that? And how do you see Serbia's domestic political landscape following these elections? Yeah, you know, I, I agree with it. Vucic likes to, again, you know, if we remember his transformation, he used to be, you know, he used to be on the far right, if you want, himself. He was the minister of information of Milosevic uh, during the wars in Yugoslavia. And then he kind of evolved from being a radical associated with Vladislav Šešel towards, uh, you know, a reformed and for the purpose of presenting himself to the West, a reformed pro-European and Western-oriented progressive. In fact, if you, you know, if you follow Vucic's domestic sort of rhetoric, you know, when he speaks to local media, you know, when he speaks to Serbian audience, you can see that, you know, there's so many examples of how he's courting the voters, you know, on the right. And I don't think it even matters if it's far right or if it's simply Serbian nationalism. As, you know, as I said before, 
if you look at the percentages, I'm sure that 61 of those who think that NATO is responsible for the war in Ukraine would also tell you that you know, Serbia has a duty to defend territories where Serbian minorities live. And that kind of translates when you think about regional politics, which I think is a very dangerous component of this nationalist right politics. It, you know, it is, again, a greater Serbia and a Serbian world, which is entertained by members of Vucic's own government. So you really... You know, I think when we when we think about this problem, it's less about how many far right parties have gotten how much percent in the parliament. It's more about to what extent a huge percentages of the Serbian population are still kind of, you know, if you want, intoxicated by this idea of greater Serbia, have very problematic views on regional kind of on, on Serbia's role in the region. And, you know, that overlaps very much also with the views on the foreign policy of Russia and China, etc. And I think in the long run, what we need to be thinking about is, you know, is there any way, you know, for Serbia to get to get itself out of there? And at the moment, I simply don't see any kind of structural conditions in place to, to kind of move to more moderate politics and moderate public opinion. Maida, we have a, about a minute left to talk about the neighborhood. In the, in the last few years, Belgrade has tried to make more of a, a of a leadership role for itself in the Western Balkans, and tensions are growing again in Bosnia Herzegovina. Could you give us a one minute tour on how Serbia's regional ties are evolving? Well, let me just so not to leave it all on you know on a negative note. Let me just kind of point out you know that Serbia you know has done some great things for the region, and that was specifically uh, on opening up its vaccination program to all of the countries. I mean, exactly this time last year, I remember because it was Easter. I think more you could find more. Uh, citizens of Sarajevo on the streets of Belgrade than ever because everyone traveled to Serbia to get vaccinated, to get the COVID vaccination. Um, and, you know, I think that kind of gave him a lot of points in the region. On the other hand, you really, you know, Serbia uh, is playing politically and in terms of foreign policy, a very highly problematic uh, role. And that is that it's kind of pursuing the policy of plausible deniability On one hand, it says it, you know, supports the territorial integrity of Bosnia and Herzegovina. And on the other, it really, you know, plays a destabilizing role, both through this idea of Serbian world. I mean, after Daudic has announced his plan to secede from within, Vucic has received him countless time, including at the military, at one of the biggest military exercises where Daudic held a speech standing next to him. And you would have thought he's a minister of defense of Serbia rather than member of presidency of Bosnia. And you also had, you know, minister of interior Vulin, who, you know, just recently said in Vienna and in this highly tense atmosphere, talked about Serbian world and, you know, extending the borders and protecting Serbian population living, you know, across the borders of Serbia. So I think this is something that makes a lot of people in the neighboring countries hosting Serbian minorities, such as Kosovo, uh, Bosnia and Montenegro, very, very nervous. My Daruge, we've run out of time, as you say, in Serbian, Hvala Puno. Thank you so much for joining us today on Altamar. 
Thank you very much uh, to both of you. And it was a pleasure to have this conversation. First of all, Peter, I want to acknowledge your flex in Serbian, which I did not consider to be one of your six languages that you speak. So I'm assuming Thea just told you phonetically what to say. That's, but exactly, <laughs> that's exactly right. I got, you, I got scripted. But the pronunciation was perfect. Peter. It was impeccable. I just want to talk to you guys about how, you know, there's, there's a lot of criticism around the room, especially with, with Maida and, and Thea, who know the region so well. And, and how can Serbia kind of come out of this in, in some sort of, of positive light? I mean, it's very difficult. And I, I think that one of the most interesting things that she said was how... Europe needs to stop giving Serbia carrots. It's enough carrots. Enough trying to understand a recalcitrant country that wants to sit on the fence forever. And I think we've seen that sitting on the fence after Ukraine is just not going to be possible anymore. So I think the next years are going to be about sticks and not carrots. Listen, I mean, he's brought a lot of stability and economic stability in the country, which is why I think a lot of uh, voters like him and support him. And that was very clear in the elections. But I think he's been creating this spider web, right? He's been using the nationalism of his own people, the pro-Russian sentiment, and then very importantly, the anti-NATO sentiment, which has been around in Serbia since the bombings in 1999. And now the spiderweb is sort of coming to haunt him because he can no longer sit on two chairs, you know, when it comes to Russia or the EU. So let's see what happens. And thank you all for joining us. And you can listen to All Tomorrow wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Also, don't forget to sign up for our biweekly newsletter, which you will get into your inbox every other Friday and get analysis on global news. See you next time. <laughs>